The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead of him and climbed up into a sycamore tree for, uh, to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Patrick. So, hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to Christ Pres. Happy President's Day weekend. Uh, and uh, really appreciate the uh, prayer for uh, those in government uh, offered a moment ago by Sheila. And, uh, you know, those prayers, uh, as Angie said, are a resource from uh, our Nashville Institute for Faith and Work and uh, really grateful for that. Uh, Today's scripture actually happens to uh, be about another government employee, not a great one, uh, and his name was Zacchaeus. And uh, before I get into the account of Zacchaeus, uh, I'll go to Great Britain, 1868, where there was an election. Uh, There were two candidates, William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli, and a woman who was uh, highly esteemed in British society, uh, had a dinner with each one of them, a private dinner, just her and each candidate. And uh, she emerged from her dinner with Gladstone saying this, he is powerful, he is intelligent, and after dining with Gladstone, I felt that he was the cleverest person in England. And then about her dinner with Disraeli, she said, after dining with Disraeli, I felt that I was the cleverest person in England. Uh, Needless to say, Disraeli won the election. What's in front of us today is a king. He's not a candidate. He's a king. And He offers to dine with a man who is not highly esteemed, but lowly esteemed in his society, and he more than inspires this man, Zacchaeus. He wins his heart. He wins the heart of a man who is hated by all by making him feel like perhaps the cleverest person in Judea. This encounter is an encounter in which God does what God does. He gives a good name to a bad man, and then the bad man 
becomes a good man. God gives a good name to a bad man, and then the bad man becomes a good man. So I'd like to go through that sentence bit by bit. The bad man, the good name, and the bad man who turns good. And I'll start with the bad man. Uh, Zacchaeus was a white-collar thief. Uh, Zacchaeus made a habit, as tax collectors would in those times in uh, ancient Rome, of exploiting an unjust system for personal gain. Uh, It says in the text that he was not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. Uh, He was employed by uh, the Roman government, which was known to be oppressive, especially to middle-class, hardworking people. And, And what the Roman government did with tax collectors was they gave them a quota. And they said, you need to go out and and collect taxes, and this is your quota. This is what you need to collect for Rome, and any amount of money that you collect above that, you can keep it, and that will be your commission. And so, tax collectors became famously or infamously known for extorting people, for taking more from people what the people owed because they could, because they could. It's like the large organization that, 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 that has a, a whole team of lawyers uh, that, that essentially presses somebody who's been maybe not paid on their insurance properly, to, to have to liquidate their own assets to fight it. And so they just give up, and they're subject to a system that sets them up to lose. Zacchaeus was the type of man in this society who had an opulent living situation, an opulent lifestyle, and a wardrobe very likely with the finest and most current and most expensive fashion. And all of this was built on the backs of hardworking, middle-class people that he took from. And so, all of society is looking at this man, you know, living in his high castle for all to see on their hard-earned stolen money. So, that's a little bit of context about a tax collector, especially a chief tax collector. Um, You could say that there was not a person in Jericho, you could probably fairly surmise this, that there was not a person in Jericho that would identify as a friend or a fan of Zacchaeus, not one person. I mean, even in this text, we see the picture. He's up in a tree alone. That's his situation. The crowds are all gathered, Jesus is there, and he's up in a tree alone. He knows his place, and so he keeps his distance. It reminds me of a lot of conversations I've had with people in churches that I've pastored. They come out of curiosity, maybe in the same way that that Zacchaeus showed up because of a curiosity about Jesus, but somehow they feel like an outsider looking in on things, and they keep their distance, and they say things like, what a man in a previous church situation said to me once after a service, after I preached on a text like this. He says, are you saying that this grace that you talk about could be 
for somebody like me? And I said, well, I, I don't know you very well. This is the first time we've ever met, but, but yes, I, I can assure you based on what the Scriptures say, based on my own experience, that there's nothing you can think, say, or do that would take you completely beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness if, if you humble yourself and receive it. And he said, are you sure? And I said, I'm pretty sure. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you a story about myself that, that nobody here knows, and you're going to be the only one who knows it. I am a registered sex offender. So, you want to change your answer? And I thought to myself, yes. <laughs> and then God put King David in my head at that moment. History's most famous sexual predator who also wrote half the Psalms. This is the scandal of Christianity. It does not discriminate between the good people and the bad people. That's what religion does. That's what philosophy does. That's what politics does. But Christianity, Jesus, does not discriminate between the good people and the bad people. It discriminates between the proud people and the humble people. You see this in a parable that, that Jesus told in the 18th chapter of the same book, the chapter right before. It's the parable of a Pharisee, a religious person, a, a man with good standing and a good name in the community, a good man who prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, adulterers. I'm a religious person. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get, and so on. And then next to him is a tax collector like Zacchaeus, who, like Zacchaeus, keeps his distance. It says in the parable, he would not even dare look up toward heaven. Instead, he looks down, beats his breast, and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, the bad man. And what's Jesus' conclusion? What's the punchline? The good man goes home condemned. The bad man goes home reconciled to God and justified. Because Christianity does not discriminate between the good people and the bad people. It only discriminates between the proud people and the humble people. Luke presses this issue. He's got a soft spot, it seems, with tax collectors, because in Luke's gospel, tax collectors are mentioned six times, and every single time, it's positive. The whole society despises tax collectors. They are the scum of the earth. They're, they're not even regarded as human. And yet every time that Luke, Dr. Luke, the physician, mentions tax collectors, it's positive. In chapter 3, there are tax collectors being baptized. In chapter 5, Matthew, the tax collector who also wrote the first gospel, is called by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples. Chapter 7, tax collectors are receiving Jesus' teaching. Chapter 15, tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus to hear what he has to say. Chapter 18, there's the parable about the humble tax collector that I just described to you. And here, the chief tax collector, salvation comes to his home. What's going on here? Scandal is what's going on. Scandal is what's going on. 
You know, the Apostle Paul called the gospel of Jesus Christ a scandal, a scandalon. There's something about it that, 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 that is so fiercely troubling. Because when you take a look at it, you, you come to realize eventually that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for outsiders and outlaws. Those are the ones who are welcomed in. Outsiders, outlaws. Bad people. Another hero of one of Jesus' parable is a Samaritan in Luke's gospel. The good Samaritan we've come to know him as. The context there, Samaritans were idolatrous people. And they were hostile toward the people that Jesus hung out with. And yet, Jesus locates a Samaritan in one of his parables as the hero. And then there's the famous parable in Luke chapter 15 of, of the prodigal son, the one who insults his father, who wishes his father dead, squanders the inheritance before his father dies, runs away, spends it on prostitutes and wild living and self-indulgence, and then becomes desperate in his self-indulgence comes home assuming that he, he maybe my father will accept me back as a slave. And the father throws a party and dances and leaps and, 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 and invites the entire community to come in and celebrate for, for this son of mine was lost and he's, alive, and, and, and he's found, he was dead and he's alive again. Outsiders and outlaws. This is what got Jesus accused of being a glutton and a drunk. This is what got Jesus reprimanded for welcoming and eating with sinners. I, don't you hope that our church gets criticized sometimes for being a gluttonous, drunk community? Don't you hope that our church gets criticized sometimes for welcoming and eating with sinners? Because if we don't, is Jesus here? Could he possibly be here if we never get accused of these things? Jesus' spiritual ancestry. By the way, Jesus was never a glutton. He was never a drunk. He was guilty by association. We don't want to be gluttons. We don't want to be drunks. But we want to be guilty by association. Because the gospel is for outsiders and outlaws. Jesus' spiritual ancestry included Noah who got drunk, Abraham, who tossed his wife under the bus, put her in very vulnerable situations with predators twice to protect himself. Jacob, who was a habitual liar. David, who was David, just talked about David, adultery, murder, abuse of power, predator. Solomon, a womanizer. Rahab, prostitute. The list is just so long. We could be here all week talking about the list of people that received his embrace, of people who heard the words in, in varying forms, I'm coming to your house today. We're going to eat together. What if the scandal of grace, that, that, that Christ welcomes outlaws and outsiders who are not good people, but who are humbled people, what if the scandal of grace is actually Christianity's validation? What if it is the one thing that proves it to be true? Because as C.S. Lewis says, no human being in their right mind would have ever invented this. this. This story has to come, this reality, this creed has to come from another place. Because no human being would have invented it. 
Look at, look at all other religion. Look at philosophy. Look at politics. Well, God invented politics. No, he didn't. God invented government. Humans invented politics. Human religion, human philosophy, human politics, they all say the same thing. Be good for goodness sake. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. You know, this is the one, well, one of, one of a few, but, but this is one of the main reasons why people say, I could never be a Christian. Because there are so many Christian hypocrites. But what if I told you that that's precisely the point? That, that, that yes, every single, starting with me, every single Christian is a hypocrite. Every single one of us lives incongruently with the things that we believe. Not just with the things we say we believe, but with the things that we do believe. What if I told you that, that in your most critical moment toward me, I'm ten times more critical of myself than you are. I'm ten times more tired of me than you are. Sometimes. Would you dismiss Jesus because of my inconsistencies? I mean, that would be something like saying, well, I, I am never going to listen to Mozart. I think Mozart was a horrible composer because I once heard a six-year-old play Mozart at a recital, and it was, it was awful. No. You're going to wait until you hear a virtuoso or a symphony play Mozart, and then you're going to judge Mozart on his own merits, right? But we don't do that with Jesus, do we? You know, Leo, Leo Tolstoy, I butchered his name. I got tongue-tied in the early service. Seems like I just about did there, too. Leo Tolstoy, Russian novelist, uh, was a Christian and, and not a very good one. And he was often rightly criticized for his inconsistencies. And in a letter to one of his critics, he wrote these words, Attack me. Attack me rather than the path I follow and which I point out to anyone who asks me where I think the truth lies. If I know the way home and am walking along that way drunkenly, is it any less the right way because I am staggering from side to side? If it, if the path of Christ is not the right way, then show me another way. Religion says, philosophy says, politics say, do good and your reward will be waiting for you at the finish line. The gospel says, you'll never be good, but your reward is there for the taking at the start line at the very beginning. You know, the Scriptures say that there is no one who does good, not even one. That's Old Testament and New Testament. It's in the Psalms, and it's in the book of Romans. There is no one who does good, not even one, except for one, the one who embraced outsiders and outlaws. He was good. But outside of him, good people is an empty set. If we're measuring virtue by the standards of virtue established for us, 
by God. Like Angie said, hey, join the club of those who can't keep the Ten Commandments. Join the club. I mean, have you ever, you ever thought about it at the very end of his life? At his most virtuous place in life, the Apostle Paul still said, I am, present tense, I am the chief of sinners. And this grace, though, that comes to us in the gospel, that comes to Zacchaeus, it's available to anyone. Anyone who's not proud. Anyone who's humble. Because the gospel does not discriminate between good and bad people. Those groups don't exist. Only one of those groups exists, according to Scripture. And according to experience, I mean, Francis Schaeffer said this, if each and every one of us carried a tape recorder, you know, you know people under the age of 25 ask your parents what a tape recorder is. <laughs> if we all carried a tape recorder around our necks that captured every conversation that we've ever had, and those, tape rec- th- those tapes were released to the general public, every single one of us would disappear and never show our face again. It is for this reason that the gospel discriminates not between the good and the bad, but between the proud and the humble, that tax collectors and sinners are drawn to Jesus like bugs to a light bulb at nighttime. It's all throughout the gospel. And it's for the same reason that religious moralists who are not poor in spirit like Zacchaeus, but who are middle class in spirit, who think they have something to bring to the table, or kind of ho-hum about or hostile even toward Jesus. A bad man. That Jesus gives a good name. In the prior chapter, there's, there's another affluent man in society. He's more upstanding than Zacchaeus is. But his upstandingness is what trips him up. He says, I've kept the whole law of God ever since I was a child. Oh, have you now? Well then, let's talk about idolatry. Let's talk about having no gods before me. Let's talk about coveting your money, all that money of yours. Open up your hands. Open up your heart. Let it all go. Follow me, and I'll show you what it really means to be rich. He couldn't do it. And so it says that he turned around and he walked away. He walked away sad. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. But he walked away. It is such a tragic thing when God gives a person an opportunity for a new start, and that person shrugs that opportunity off and walks away. Chapter 17 two chapters before this one. There are 10 people with leprosy. Leprosy at that time was an incurable disease, and it was terminal. 10 people with leprosy come to Jesus because they know that he's got power. They've heard, and some of them maybe witnessed him healing people who were incurable. And so these 10 lepers come to Jesus and say, have mercy on us. And he does. He heals all 10 of them. Only one came back and said thank you. Just one. 
You know, Joseph's son, the missionary, says that 90% of Christians pass the test of adversity, while 90% of Christians fail the test of prosperity. You know, Jesus, after the rich ruler event, says, it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So hard. How hard? How difficult, Jesus says, is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the disciples say, well, who can be saved? Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And then he turns around and, and gives them a demonstration, an object lesson in Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to this man's house. Notice, he's speaking past tense. He's not saying it is coming. He's not saying it will come. He says it's already come. Before I call him down from that sycamore tree, before I give him the words of life that I'm coming to eat with him as a friend, it's already come to his house. How can this be the case? Well, it's right there. There's a clue in the text. Jesus saw Zacchaeus long before Zacchaeus saw Jesus. And you say, well, well, no, 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 Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree so he can get a look at Jesus. You know, he's, he's been thinking about how he can, you know, get a closer look at Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Who called who by name? Zacchaeus didn't announce himself. Jesus just looked in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come on down from that tree. Hurry up. I, the homeless man, am coming to your house today to show you the greatest hospitality you've ever seen on your turf. Are you in? See, Zacchaeus, it says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was driven by curiosity. Jesus looks up, and he's driven by the fact that he already knows Zacchaeus' name, that salvation has already come to his house, and it's time for Jesus to reveal it. Before the foundations of the earth, Zacchaeus, I set you apart as one who would be holy and blameless in my sight. In love, I predestined you to be adopted as my son through Jesus Christ in accordance with my glory and my will. Oh, that sounds like Calvinism. No, that's Ephesians. Word for word, Ephesians, Bible. You would have never set your affection on Jesus had he not set his affection on you first. And how thankful we ought to be for that. You know, some come to church in the same way that Zacchaeus came to Jesus, out of curiosity, sitting at a distance like that Luke 18 tax collector, won't even look up to heaven, wouldn't presume or dare to do so, out of reverence. The message now is the same as it was then. Welcome to my house. Can I come to yours? Welcome to my table. Can I eat at yours? I want to come 
and not just be your guest. I want to come and take over. I don't want to come and be your consultant or your personal advisor. I want to come and master you. I want to come and rearrange your furniture. I want to come and be your interior designer and your exterior designer from this point forward. Are you in? And I think what triggered an enthusiastic yes from Zacchaeus is this very fact that Jesus invited Zacchaeus to belong with him before Zacchaeus believed in him. Before. This is the pattern in Scripture. When Jesus says, come down, Zacchaeus is still a crook. When Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus is still a predator. And an abuser of power. But when he says, I'm coming into your house, this is, again, this is what sets Christianity apart from from human religion, human philosophy, and, and human politics. It's there in John chapter 8, too, with the woman caught in the act of adultery and all the middle class and spirit men want to condemn her. And she's standing there poor in spirit, and Jesus says, has, has no one condemned I do not condemn you. That's a, let's start there. I don't condemn you. The environment that you have with me, safe, protected, secure. I know everything about you, and I don't hold any of it against you. That's our starting point. No condemnation no separation. That's our starting point. Now, that being established, let's talk about your ethics. It's time for you to leave your life of sin. I mean, what person in their right mind, who's been forgiven by somebody for something really hurtful that you've done? Raise your hand. I'll raise both of mine and stand on my toes. We have all really hurt somebody and and they forgave us. Tell me that's not the person from that point forward that you were most motivated not to disappoint and not to grieve. And, and, and if you felt okay about disappointing them and grieving them after they forgave you, then you're probably a sociopath. And so it's no wonder that the one who walks on the water and speaks to the sea, the one who carries our healing in his hands, When he speaks words like this, I'm coming to your house, it's no wonder that we would want to say, come on in, be my interior and exterior decorator, rearrange the furniture, do whatever you want. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Of all my being, have absolute sway. Because you have invited me to belong even before I believed. You welcome sinners and eat with us. See, that's the difference between a Christian and a, and a religious moralist. A religious moralist says he welcomes sinners and eats with them. A Christian says he welcomes sinners and eats with us. Big difference. He distinguishes between the proud and the humble, not the good and the bad. You see the same pattern throughout Scripture. You know, theologians call it the indicatives that come before the imperatives, the identity statements that come before the commands. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, what came first? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here are my ten rules. Here are my ten rules, you know, so much better than Jordan Peterson. Sorry, Jordan Peterson fans, but Jesus had ten of them. Jordan Peterson has twelve. Jesus only needed ten. These are my rules for life, my rules for health. My, my rules for, for, for being a life-giving person and experiencing life abundant. 
But it starts with, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you from slavery. Romans does not say our repentance leads God to be kind. It says God's kindness leads us to repent. 1 Corinthians is the letter of all letters where an apostle drops the hammer on a church that is not acting like a church. But before he drops any hammers, he reminds them of who they are. You are saints. You are forgiven. You are recipients of grace. You are heirs of the promises of God. That's chapter 1. And then the rest of the chapters are just hammer time. Hammer, 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 hammer. You know, for some of us, the scandal is this. I can't believe they are included. Tax collectors and sinners. Remember one of the most troubling things I ever heard since I became a Christian was that Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, became a Christian before he was executed in prison. I did not like that news. That bugged me. Corrie Ten Boom had a more close-to-home experience when she was giving a talk to a large crowd on forgiveness and her experience of, of, of forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven her from all the atrocities that happened to her, her sister, and, and so many of the, the precious Jews that they sought to protect during the Holocaust. And there was an officer from the Ravensbrück concentration camp there in the audience, and he approached her and he said, Fräulein, I remember you and I suspect you remember me as well. Since those dark days, I too have become a Christian. And so I ask you, is this forgiveness of which you speak for me as well? And she wrestled for a moment. And then she realized she had to say yes. For some, the scandal is that they are included. For others, the scandal is that I'm included. You know, I talked a couple weeks ago about John Newton, the, the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, you know that every time you, you sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, you are singing words written by a slave trader and a sexual predator. Do you realize that? When he says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he really means that word wretch. He really means it. And the rest of his life, a lot like Zacchaeus was in a 180-degree turn, he's almost singularly responsible for being the one who, to persuade William Wilberforce to stand alone in Parliament to fight for the abolition of slaves. And he became a one-woman man in his marriage for the rest of his life, deeply regretting his life before grace. The scandal is they're included, or the scandal is I'm included. But when Jesus calls you by name, he always takes a bad name and makes it good. Jacob the liar, you are now Israel who wrestled with God and prevailed. Peter the coward, you are now the rock upon whom I will build my church. David the predator, the adulterer, the murderer, you are now a man after God's own heart. Now write some prayers down for my people to use through every generation of history and every culture until I return. Rahab, you were a whore. Now you are my princess. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Can you think of a better place to go with your shame? You may be sitting up there in the tree, marinating on the contempt that, 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 that others, you know, throw your way, whether real or imagined, or marinating on the contempt that you feel toward yourself. Get out of the tree. 
you don't belong there anymore. You don't belong at a distance. You belong up close. Eye contact is yours. He knows your name. He knew it before you knew it. Jesus' answer to your self-contempt and mine is, hey, insert first name, I'm coming to your house today. You want to open up? This is also, by the way, the defining mark of Christian community. You know, I mentioned 1 Corinthians a moment ago. One of the main things that Paul addresses in Christian community is a very perverse kind of immorality where a man is intimate with his stepmother. And he says to the church, you've got to call this out. Anyone who calls himself a believer, you've got to call this out in the church. But then 2 Corinthians comes around, and, and we realize that along the way, this man has responded with grief and remorse and sorrow and done a turn in the same way that Zacchaeus did, in the same way that King David did, in the same way that Rahab did. And Paul says, do not treat him like an outsider or an outcast or an outlaw. Treat him. Don't, do not put a scarlet letter on him. Show him comfort. Embrace him as one of your own. Otherwise, he will be overwhelmed with sorrow over his guilt and shame. The church of Jesus Christ of all places in the world, this is the place to have your shame reversed. The negative verdicts, true, imagined, and false, to have all those negative verdicts reversed in the gospel. Because Jesus has given you a new name. He's come to your house. And this is what makes a bad man turn good. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, by all means, Lord, come into my house. By all means, rearrange my furniture. By all means, overhaul my interior and my exterior design. New identity, new life. Half of my goods I give to the poor. He's not commanded to do that in the Bible, by the way. He's commanded to be generous to the poor, but he's not commanded to give half of what he has to the poor. He just does it. He exceeds what the law… He doesn't say, well, what's the minimum? He says, what, what could be the maximum? And then he, he does say, I will obey this because the law does say this. If you've defrauded anybody, restore it fourfold. It says that in two places in the Old Testament. So he says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to do it now. This man, once driven by greed and abuse of power, is now open-handed and does more than the law requires of him. You know, one of the commentaries I read this past week says this, the hardest thing to give is in. The hardest thing to give is in, unless you've received grace. Did you know that God has a Twitter account? I was thumbing through God's Twitter account this morning. He's got something like five million followers, but God on Twitter follows one person. And you know who that one person is? Justin Bieber, <laughs> of course. And we think this is laughable because Justin Bieber is known to be a prodigal, issues with drugs, womanizing, get in trouble with the law, and so on. But on the other hand, is it laughable really, or is Justin Bieber right on time? You know, I, I, I heard a, an interview with Justin Bieber's 
pastor a couple of months ago about, and he told a story about Bieber's baptism and his sort of journey into faith fairly recently. And, you know, you may be following it in the tabloids. Justin Bieber got engaged and he got married. What you may not have caught was, was this, this picture of Justin Bieber holding a copy of Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage uh, right after the engagement. And what you might not have caught in the tabloids is that Justin Bieber and his fiance waited until after their, uh, their, mar- their, their wedding to become intimate with one another. Like all of us, God's one follow on Twitter is a work in progress and a fluent young man whose life is in the process of being transformed because surely his goodness and mercy will follow Justin Bieber and you and me all the days of our lives. He follows you long before you follow him. It's true for Zacchaeus, it's true of us. One thing is certain. When the grace of God gets a hold of you, it will initiate a reversal in your values and in your character. Over time, you will become like Justin Bieber, more conservative in the sharing of your body, and like Zacchaeus, more liberal in the sharing of your possessions and your goods. Because the house that was once a house of greed and selfishness becomes in Jesus Christ a house of generosity and worship. Zacchaeus started out as a wee little man. He started out as a midget in stature and soul. But Jesus turned him into a great man. And he can do the same for you and also for me. So so what about you? He says he's coming to your house and to your table. You want to let him in? May it be so. Let's pray. Surely your goodness and your mercy, O Lord, will follow us all of the days of our lives. And we shall dwell in your house, the house of the Lord, forever. Lord, come dwell in ours as well, we pray. In your name, amen.